Good morning. Is anybody there? Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm well. Melissa? Yes. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. So I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you today. I got to say, I was checking out the work that we will be talking about today, and I was just blown away. I got to be honest with you. This is such uh, an amazing work that you did. And I think, <laughs> I just got to be honest, before we kind of get started here, uh, the work is so interesting. <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. I just want to thank you for, for this amazing collection. I mean, it's, it's something really special. So, um, yeah, congratulations oh, that, on it too. That means so much to me. And now I'm going to sound totally insincere when I say that I've been <laughs> inhaling so many of the episodes of calling, but I, I really was going to say that because it's very much true. Oh goodness. Well, I do appreciate it, but let's get started. Shall we? Let's, sure. let's see. I want to start at the beginning as much as I want to talk about the poetry collection right here, right now. I want to get a sense of where you come from. And if it's okay for me to ask, where does your story begin? Uh, where are you from? Uh, what inspired your creative journey to get started? Oh, sure. Um, well, I was raised in Connecticut. Uh, more or less since the age of four, after my parents divorced, we came back to where my mother was from. And I've just kind of bopped around different places in Connecticut for most <laughs> of that time, although my father uh, had moved to South Carolina, so I spent a significant amount of time in the summers there. And so that's the geography of it. And um, I really, in terms of poetry, I really didn't even think about it or pursue it until about 10 years ago. Mm. And I had, I think I'd primarily thought of myself as a fiction writer, but mm -hmm. I could never really get any of my ideas off the ground <laughs> when I would try to work on a short story or novella and mm. somehow when I just, whatever, just gave into the idea of poetry, then it, a lot of dots were connected and somehow I was able to tell stories and mm. my own experiences so much better through poetry. Interesting. And so you came to that a little bit later. You were set on doing fiction then, or that was an aim that you had since you were younger, or did you come to writing in general later in life? Well, I always thought of myself, you know, as a writer, and I was like a million people. I was, mm. you know, usually writing novels in notebooks, uh, you know, in math class yeah. and stuff like that. But, yeah. um, and I, you know, won a couple contests in college, but I think in a way I was, you know, time slips by and mm -hmm. I was, I was able to find work in writing and communications, but mm -hmm. I was just, I think I was still telling myself that in terms of the creative side, that I was, you know, like a short story writer. But as I said, I was totally delusional because I wasn't really <laughs> finishing any of these fantastic ideas that I was coming up with. You know, that sounds like me and fiction. I have to be honest. It is oh, really? my, it is my Mount Rushmore or what do you call it? Like my Mount Everest of things to do is right. finish one of the many novels that I have stowed away. But it's it's elusive, right? And as you said, mm -hmm. time is the the biggest danger of, of all. Like feeling like you're you have the time to pursue this when in fact years or maybe decades could go by without something concrete actually coming together. And I feel like that's happened for me. I don't know about you, like if you felt like you were running out of time to do certain things. I think so. And I think without admitting it to myself, I kind of just put it aside and it's a definite craft fiction writing. Uh -huh. And I think I, you know, you never say never, of course, but <laughs> yeah. um, I think I'm now realizing that it's not really in the skill set that I, at least up till now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can, you can sort of get a sense of that interest in the work that I was reading. And I think maybe that's why I appreciated it so much, because as I'm looking at it, the moment it begins with a cast of characters, 
I am in. I am completely sold. And so just to maybe paint a picture here, uh, Red Low Fog, correct? Right, right. This is such a, an interesting, peculiar uh, creation, I have to say. And as a playwright, I think maybe that's what lured me in. I felt like you, you have a cast of characters. I am in. I'm sold. And then you start taking different turns. I, I'll go back to your, your creative origins, but I think I'm just too excited to, <laughs> to learn more about how you, how you brought this collection into the world. Because it's not really a collection, it's a narrative. And right. I'm really interested in how this came to be. If you could give us a bit of its origin for the listener. Yeah, you know, as I was saying, it it's funny because the idea for it predates actually my interest in or or attempt at poetry because I um, was just a couple months ago I found a printed out email that I'd written to an old friend who's a professor of children's literature, mm. and I was asking him a little bit about what his sense was about how you know were there superstar children's book authors in the 70s to his knowledge. But the interesting thing about it was that I realized that the date stamp on the email was something like 2006. Mm. So I really had this thought, and I think I knew that I wanted it to read like a transcript, that it was going to be a documentary. Um, but I, I was going to, it was going to be sort of a kind of a hybrid fictional piece. And um, that's a great example of me kind of not knowing how to do it. Mm. And then somehow after I'd been writing poetry for a few years, the idea came back to me and suddenly I was thinking, well, just what if each of the characters or each of the entities had a specific poetic form that they spoke in mm. and somehow it just kind of all came together from there. Yeah. And it's so fascinating because it does feel like a kaleidoscope of perspective. The whole time you're reading it, every character is defined. And I think it is because so much consideration must have gone into what kind of form they would be speaking in. And I don't want to give anything away. And it feels like it, the more I talk about it, I, I wouldn't want to spoil anything for the, the potential perspective reader. But I love that at the end of the book, you actually put in a bit of a, an after word on what the reasoning was behind some of the forms that you chose. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit on that, on, on how you made those choices? Um, and I know it might be hard without giving something away, but. Oh, well, sure. Um, and that's okay if we spoil something. <laughs> there. But I think maybe because the, the main, main character, Delphine, is the closest to my heart. Um, and maybe because I've always been so fascinated with the villain elf, probably thanks to Elizabeth Bishop. Mm. Somehow that was definitely um it just that just sort of came to me without really pursuing what it should be and i knew that i wanted to have a couple of um book reviews in there that were kind of uh, i was imagining what if molly bloom wrote a kirkus review you know of <laughs> children's books kind of like kind of really heightened and rambling so i um you know, I knew I wanted to do something like that and kind of make it, a, because they're picture books, kind of make that an, an ekphrasis. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I, I got interested in Japanese poetry forms, particularly when I found out that there was one um, really ancient called the Sudoka that was traditionally it was three lines and then a lover would answer in the next <laughs> three lines mm. like the later haikus it had a specific you know syllable structure and so forth but yeah. that really fascinated me because my sense of delphine and the man she falls in love with um thomas mm -hmm. was that they have this connection even when things go wrong they have this connection so uh, it just, again, 
it's hard to even remember. I'm sure that I bring <laughs> up, you know, what are different right. poetry that feel right for these these certain things. And then when I really felt like it was coming together as a cohesive work was when I uh, started thinking about these witnesses. There are 12 witnesses. You mm. only hear from each one once, but they, and not like on consecutive pages, but they form a chain throughout the book. And they, mm. uh, there's a form that I found called the Katina Rondeau, which has, it's sort of like, if I can even remember, it's <laughs> you know, like it's the the second line and the next one is the first and the fourth line and so forth. And it makes a chain. And, you know, I wanted to write it that if the reader didn't even happen to notice that those lines were repeating from the previous witness, that would be okay. But that it does, at least subliminally, I hope. And I think that... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was wrapping up. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that was super effective because especially when you spoke of it in terms of the witnesses being more like a Greek chorus, you know, then you start speaking my language and I immediately was in. But even before I got to that description, you know, at the at the end, it felt like these folks all have their personality as much as they have their role in the narrative. And I think for me, that's why I, lo I love this so much, because it was so effective, you know, and it felt very tragic as well as, as emotional, um, especially when you use those forms. Like you said, with, with the couple, it felt like, it felt like romance was happening, like, like togetherness, a connection. And there was a line and I, I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. It was like, um, being halves that were that were mis incomplete and uh i i just love that so much because i think as much as the right choice of words made it effective i think the form was doing a lot of the heavy lifting and that's why i i was so taken by the choices um i just i got to commend you on that because it was so much fun to feel like you were getting taken by the form, but you didn't even know it, you know, because I'm, I'm fairly form illiterate, you know, I'm still learning a lot of this stuff, but it was so, so well-crafted. Um, oh, thank you so much. So to go back to some of your inspirations and the things that you, you sort of enjoyed, you mentioned Elizabeth Bishop, were there other poets or creatives, artists that you were consuming at the time that you put this together? or maybe ones that resonated with you growing up? Yeah, I think that that, um, I kept, there were things that, that were coming back to me, people that were really important to me as I was writing this. And even if I couldn't think of the obvious ways that they were, um, Richard Brodigan is a huge influence. Um, I don't know, maybe just because, well, just because he's wonderful. Um, but he's also kind of zigzagging between poetry and, um, kind of a quasi novels and, mm. um, and also just the music of the seventies. That was such a great era for story songs oh, yeah. and yeah. songwriter, like troubadour era. I love that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were there some standouts? I got to ask for my music collection so I can get uh, some some of your recommendations. Oh no, my mind will totally <laughs> go go blank. But you know, like Bobby Gentry was a, a great okay. singer songwriter, and she wrote "Ode to Billy Joe," and mm -hmm. uh, she wrote the song "Fancy," which Reba McIntyre later made a okay. big hit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she was a big one, but you know, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and uh, even kind of novelty songs like the night the lights went out in Georgia. Mm -hmm. You know, I was kind of a little kid during that era, but um, they really captured my imagination. And I had so many siblings and step siblings who were, mm -hmm. you know, 
teens and 20s when I was a kid. And so, you know, how you idolize your older siblings. So uh -huh. I was really paying attention to, you know, the my sis, stepsister who loved Jackson Brown, things like that. Oh, so, Yeah, I just started listening to more of the deep cuts of Jackson Brown. I had only known him fairly superficially. And then I went back and I realized everything that I had been missing out on because lyrically, even at such an early age, he was just a phenomenon in the way yes. that he could yeah, be emotional with such clarity. <laughs> um, what was that song that he, that he came up with? Um, the one for Nico. And I, I saw that on YouTube somewhere and uh, maybe it was a cover, but it was clear enough that I could hear the lyrics. And they mm -hmm. said that he wrote that at like 17. And I'm like, what 17 year old or 16 year old can write like that? <laughs> you know? Um, no, that's almost irritating. Um, Kate Bush, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I recently found out that Kate Bush um, wrote um, one of my favorites, which is The Man with the Child in His Eyes, when mm -hmm. she was like 14. Oh. Um, and a lot of her important work is pre, like pre-20. But wow. yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. But you felt like you, you connected with those things and they're still a part of the way that you see the world, right? In some way? Yeah, I would say so. Mm. So how long did the collection take to come together, would you say? I think in terms of real writing, like I said, I obviously I had this idea like 15 years ago or, or more, but, um, you know, I was, I was writing other poems, um, and I, I, um, I, in fact, I was just recently looking through my chapbook and I realized that like 90% of that are, are store of that one was stories as well. Mm. Um, but that, that's a little bit of a tangent, but I also realized that for better or for worse, after the 2016 election uh -huh. my creativity went right down the drain and i i remember trying i did come up with some villanelles during that point and i must have been mm. thinking about it more than i realized but it is amazing after the <laughs> inauguration in uh -huh. 2020 it's not like i said okay there's a new president now that <laughs> let's go back to <laughs> but somehow the majority of it was done in january and february of 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 that year oh, so that's fascinating yeah because you know that there there's some folks who get mobilized in a kind of activism sort of way where they take their craft and then when things get tough like 2016 everyone's writing poems about the sort of like the the counter to what's going on in right. in the political mainstream and i find that i'm kind of like you in a sense and that i just kind of shut down a little bit like I would try to create something to make something and it didn't feel right. I felt like burned out before I even began. Do you feel like that was kind of the case with you? I think so. I mean, you know, I'm not, it, I certainly have no, um, I, I'm interested in political poetry to a mm. certain extent, but I guess it's not the first thing that I would read necessarily. And it's certainly sure. not, something that I was attempt, maybe I should have been, maybe even if the product was horrible, it would have been, you know, better yeah. than ranting on Twitter for four or five years, but, <laughs> but for better or worse, that's kind of what happened, but it must've been sort of churning in there somewhere because it really came out very, very quickly. Mm. I think it was just, yeah, the right time possibly for you. Like yeah. it had been sitting enough. Um, in previous projects, do you feel like you have to let them sit after a while, not not looking at something that you've already drafted or worked on? I think that I now know that that's what I should do, <laughs> but <laughs> I would just kind of write things and send them out and, um, you know, and some of them would be accepted by uh, publication and that would be really exciting. But sometimes things would come back with really helpful suggestions. Mm. And, um, and I, I took those to heart. So, um, but I think now I'm more of a simmerer than I used to be. Mm. And just to uh, just clarify a bit, this is your second 
poetry book that you've put together. Is that correct? Or have you worked on several before? No, I had, I had um, a previous chat book that came out in oh, 2015. Okay. And then, and yeah, and then we had the uh, great um, <laughs> Black Dark Ages. And then, yeah, and then this Red Low Fog transcript is, is the next one. So just two in total. Oh, wonderful. So from the first collection to the second, what did you feel were some things that you're taking from the first one onto the second one, if there's any kind of learning experiences or things that you really felt like I'm not going to do this again, or I, I feel like I'm better in this particular area. Well, one thing is it's maybe not so much an artistic journey, but a lot of the uh, things in the first chapbook, well, the, the, the poems in the chapbook were really inspired by a lot of research I was doing about global traditions, holiday traditions, and, mm. uh, you know, harvest moments, uh, harvest celebrations and things like that. But um, they really, in the interim between my writing those poems and then starting to work on uh, this, this collection, um, what happened is my two children started college and really mm. started kind of teaching us um so much and mm. really we spent a lot of time talking about cultural appropriation and i i do have to say looking at my collection my my chapbook mm. that even though i'm not i'm always kind of visiting these things as a tourist um or a, or a friend of Mm -hmm. somebody who celebrated these things. Sure. I don't know that I would make these same choices now. And, um, but, uh, and in fact, the looking at it, I think the couple of poems that I wrote that were just like my experiences, I think are a little bit stronger. So mm. that is something that I've spent uh, more time thinking about. Yeah. And that's such an important conversation to have with oneself and with a community as a whole, the creative community, because I personally feel like there's got to be a way for a creative who is not of a certain culture to be able to, to show or share a perspective on, on something that is not something that's native to them. Um, if, if that makes sense, it's such a difficult thing because I think that now, you know, people of color and, and people of other cultures, you know, do have a right to sort of take center stage on, on what their own culture is and presenting yes. it in the way that they see fit. I totally agree. You know, as a, as a Mexican, you know, who's, who's aimless in the land of Wyoming, you know, I totally get it. You know, it's important for, for us to reclaim our culture, but I also feel like you, you shouldn't have to censor an observation, you know, because you're just because you're outside of a certain group, um, especially if it comes from a place of, of good, right. Which I know that, you know, you strike me as an ally or somebody who, <laughs> you know, who, who would have the sensitivity to, to speak about these things, but, um, it's definitely a goal. Thank you. But yeah. yeah, it's, it's a goal, but it's hard to know. I, yeah. in the, yeah. In this transcript, I was noticing that as I was going to kind of name people and come up with backstories, even if they were just not just for my own sake, mm. I realized that I was going to my comfort zone of like these sturdy New England Yankee names. <laughs> like, uh, when I tried to write a novel in college, I remember that all I turned to um, these Apple, everybody had like an mm. Apple name. <laughs> and you know stuff like that and honey honey crisp but sort of there are a lot of old ancient apple varieties and i was uh -huh. kind of using that as an inspiration but those were like those granite faced yankee types and i uh -huh. and as i started doing this i realized that just i i just don't want to do that anymore like mm. you said there's there's got to be a middle ground and so i kind of um, it was important to me to not just have a completely whitewashed sure. set of characters, sure. you know, what possible. Yeah. And I think you did a great job at that because it never, 
like my difficulty with some works is that they become an edict uh, of of a certain kind as to how you need to incorporate anyone and everyone. And and then at that point, it just feels manufactured. Where Whereas I'm more of a fan of the the Apple theory that you've put forth, right? There, there's another way to create inclusiveness with magic, with metaphor, with a little bit of, of an observation that, that shows us that there is variety, there is a whole bunch of perspectives. And I think, you know, we just get caught up in, in certain edicts that may not fit what we want to do. But as long as it comes from a place of good, and I could tell the moment I start reading your work that I'm like, okay, this is, this is a person who has no, no hatred in their heart. There's like, there's empathy there, you know, for people. So, um, you definitely don't have anything to worry about. Um, but sorry, we kind of got off on a tangent there. (laughs) I'm glad we did for my, I mean, I am personally glad that we did because it is, um, I'm definitely interested in your perspective. I mean, there is the narrator is Mexican from mm-hmm. from from Texas. Yeah, and um, I felt for some reason that's just how he, he you know you start picturing people, and that's just how yeah. he came to me. But at the same time, I sort of thought, well, he's he's the narrator and we know we know bits about him and glimpses of his marriage but it's not mm-hmm. you know again i i i i thought that that might be okay some kind oh, of absolutely to- absolutely because you you need to have a person who is not from the community in the way that you set up the story to to give that sort of outsider perspective in a way to what was happening and to make the documentarian couple, just sort of that background, I thought was was super interesting. And I thought it really created a contrast, especially because they were a couple as well. And and so you could kind of look, you know, at the differences between how they they worked as a couple versus um our protagonist couple. So that was, I thought, a, a really successful part of it. But now you a part of this collection and one of the things that i really enjoyed about it too was that it's it's a conversation about art and collaboration in a way can mm-hmm. you speak to how that came into the mix or how you started to find that theme in in what you were writing well there's um i i can remember probably at a formative period of my time and and you know, my husband's a writer, and when mm-hmm. when we were first together, it was like, how do you present your? You know, I it just yeah. I yeah. was thinking more of my. You can't help thinking of yourself as a brand in a way. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't realize that at the time, but it's kind of a really pernicious way to to think to kind of you know start a life together if you're not. Um, if you're not just really, if you're constantly thinking about, oh, we're a creative couple in the world and we're yeah. really interesting. And of course he, <laughs> he was no help because we'd go to, you know, the rare cocktail party and someone would say, so where do you come up with your ideas? And he would just be, you know, he just hated that kind of talk. And mm. so I won't say he like flipped a table, but he just wasn't really <laughs> interested in he's a very nice person so i don't but he just wasn't he definitely was not interested in what i now think of as the branding of a couple but at Mm -hmm. the time i was really fascinated by um you know bill moyers had a series in which he would go Mm -hmm. to this was definitely an influence he would go to um the homes of couples who were like married poets like donald hall and opinion were one and then there's another couple which i would rather not name because they didn't end well oh. but but at the time they i remember just being so struck when i watched it and they were still you know intact and everything was fine the way that they talked it was really we breathed together we even when we have our individual uh projects were kind of collaborating in each other's mm. works it sounded so magical to me right 
and little, then yeah oh go ahead i'm sorry oh no i was just gonna say and then i mean then just as you you know get older and older you sort of are reading more biographies and you're realizing that there is it can be magical but there is a danger in um presenting yourself or just like letting yourself think of your um partnership in that way whether it's artistic or just marital it just becomes yeah like instagram wasn't around at the time but kind of like this instagrammable life rather right. than just your actual life and you know i felt like you did that really well with thomas and correct me if i'm wrong on this it's just kind of the initial perception that i got from him is that he seemed to be the more idealist one and such grand idealism kind of turned into something else would you say that's kind of how you saw that yeah absolutely i think that you know delphine is a, a couple of years younger they're both very young in this but uh they're like the wonder kids of the you know mm -hmm. young adult or the picture book world rather but she's you know she's had some she's been knocked around a little bit in life by the time she meets him mm -hmm. um whereas he's been a bit more sheltered and living in this great camp in the adirondacks and and also he just i think by nature is has a marketing spirit mm -hmm. and so when the um when alex and burgett the documentarians arrive it's thomas who's really kind of running around and showing mm -hmm. them things and like sort of telling them how, you know, yeah. almost like being a background director in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I just thought that was so clever. And I wonder if that was something that you mentioned, you worked in communications at some point in time. Is that something that came from the type of work that you did in your day job? Or was that something that just felt right for the character, you know, or something that you could kind of use from your work experience it probably is something that that did trickle down because i've been on both sides of the the kind of marketing thing out mm -hmm. of for about five years i worked for a nonprofit anti-hunger agency mm -hmm. and i was the communications person and obviously all for a very important cause but you are like picking out you know you're going to soup kitchens and saying hey where's a good success story that's right. like right. you know light and bright and everything uh -huh. and then after after i left that and i was freelancing for a while then my next kind of proper job was as a newspaper reporter for you know a small weekly paper but mm. you're still getting a lot of press releases and you're still being sent out to interview people who have, um, you know, an, an exhibit or, or their own book that they've written. And, you, you know, just in reading the press releases or looking at how they're presenting themselves, um, it's, it, it just is something that makes you aware of that tension between, you know, it is important when you can <laughs> it, it's important to try to talk about your work but at the same time you you do find yourself slip it's too easy to slip into a role an archetype i guess uh-huh yeah yeah but i i mean i i think that it worked really well and if there was anything to draw from from your personal backstory i i think it wasn't something that was front and center or anything i just thought that maybe it could be a little bit of an inkling, right? Of like, oh, I get to use this kind of subset of skills, kind of put them in, you know, in this character. But it felt very organic. You know, it definitely wasn't anything like, oh, you know, she's using her, her marketing skills or whatever. But right. <laughs> I'm curious of your your background when you did a lot of this newspaper work or communications work. Is it really true that writing for your day job just completely burns you out? and and prevents you from from doing creative work is that was that your experience it it was my definitely my experience um there's certainly there are people who manage that and but for me 
Um, it, it was, it, yeah, it just did take up all my creative energy. Mm. Uh, even, even if I, you know, I did try to find creative things to write about at the newspaper, but of course you're also still writing about the water treatment plant (laughs) or the great budget debate of, you know, Oh three and stuff like that. So it just, the trying to translate something that's abstract, um, and translate it and make it reader friendly is um, it it take it's creative it takes a lot of energy right right so now that you have consistently put out some work and you have this book coming what have you learned in terms of your practices like creative practices writing practices uh, could you share a little bit about how you work or how you get stuff done when it comes to your writing output? Well, I definitely uh, over-research things as a way to procrastinate. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'm alone in that, but it's definitely my particular um, bugaboo. I'm working on a project right now which does require research, but um, uh, a couple people have said to me, yeah, I know you want to know, you know, such and such, but you, you could start making a, making your way into the, <laughs> I, I think that's true. <laughs> Thank you for the gentle hints, friends. But um, yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm undisciplined as a person just in general. And I, you know, and I have depression and anxiety and so forth. So it's definitely feast or famine with me. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel that now that the collection is out, there is a bit of relief in your creative life for the time being? Yeah, I think so, because I don't, you know, I'm at the beginning of this and I'm even sort of thinking of splintering off and writing some, because this, what I'm, what I'm writing now would be almost a, another story type of thing. And I also want to just be making some, just some poems from actual my actual life so all that stuff but it it's it's the it is the fun stuff where i'm tr- doing a lot of figuring out of what to focus on and what would be the form and what would be the voice mm-hmm. and it's definitely um so i'm not having to present it to anybody sending things out is horrible <laughs> um, be- i agree <laughs> definitely better at it than when I first started 10 or 12 years ago um, and would live or die by every single uh, response, every email that came in. Um, But, but sending out, you know, red low fog, you know, to contests was, it, it was, you know, you feel kind of defeated. In fact, I, I was mentioning that I kind of completed it in 2020 mm-hmm. and I, I thought I had anyway, and I sent it out to 10 or 12 contests and, you know, what won none of them. Mm-hmm. But in that time, then I took another six months or so and then really it realized where the weaknesses were. So I think I had sent it out to fast but anyway Mm. then i sent it out to another 10 or so and you know fortunately and i was really lucky that animal heart press didn't just accept it but was just so enthusiastic about it yeah yeah there's a right kind of excitement going on over at animal heart um i was curious of the next project that you have coming up if you could elaborate unless it's top secret i totally get it it's definitely not top secret, <laughs> although it might make you laugh given uh, what happens to Thomas and Delphine in, in Red Low Fog, but I'm, I'm sort of, right now I'm picturing it as a graphic novel that's mm. kind of, that will probably contain verse. And um, oh, cool. the, the kind of funny or ironic part is that my husband We'll probably be doing the. He's interested. He's accepted the job of being the illustrator. <laughs> so you know, it's like, what am I doing? I 
think it's, you know, we've been together long enough that I don't think we have the same kind of dangers that Thomas and Delphine did. Um, sure, yeah. <laughs> it, it definitely doesn't have Thomas's um, challenges, but yeah, so it is actually going to be an alternative history. Mm. Um, and the premise is what happened, what would have happened in the earliest days of our, of European settlement in the 1600s, mm. if the Marymount colony had succeeded and the Plymouth colony had failed, or mm. at least not been our big, you know, point of mm. reference. In other words, what if the Puritans had not been our, mm. you know, the stone? Yeah. So I don't, I didn't know much about the Marymount colony and Thomas Morton, the leader, until a couple of years ago. Um, and I just went, I can't even remember what the rabbit hole was. Uh, I know Hawthorne wrote a story called the Maypole of Marymount and he kind of posits about that. It was at that moment, um, which was a real moment, you know, it was either hanging in the balance of whether I think he put it as like sunshine would prevail because Marymount was like Woodstock. It was <laughs> or with the like shadow of Puritanism, sure. you know? Yeah. And of course, you know that did unfortunately in some ways the shadows prevailed. So mm. alternative histories um, are really interesting because so often the premise is what if the worst possible thing had happened? You know, uh -huh. what if, the Nazis won, or what if, sure. you know, the, the slavers, you know, what if the Civil War went the wrong way? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I'm sure around the world, they have their own versions of events that were really important to that region. Mm -hmm. but, um, but we seem to be fixated on Nazis and plantations. But <laughs> anyway, I... I um just was it just struck me when I learned about Marymount and that it mm. you know that the the Plymouth colonists destroyed it wow. um exiled Thomas Morton and um so it just it seemed you know 400 years after the fact it just seemed really poignant to me and it just started thinking I started thinking what if mm -hmm. it, Thomas Morton's vision which was very much about um uh working with the local native americans and and building community with them right um, that had happened he and he also was very um he rescued all these indentured servants and he was very much against any kind of slavery so what if they had taken on slavery and 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 or shadow slavery from africa and mm -hmm. just that kind of thing so my Mine will probably end up being quite utopian, but um, but you know you can do what you want when you're when it's an all history. <laughs> Absolutely, and I have to say that is incredibly fascinating because you touch on a good point. We in the alternative history kind of fandom or whatever you want to call it, you know, in that realm, we do obsess over the the dark timeline, right? The thing that is going to bring cataclysm, you know, and and we got to be grateful for what we have, that sort of mentality, because it could have been right. a lot worse. But I think it's so useful to come up with a, another way to use that sort of what if, because when you do it that way, the way that you propose, you're creating models for good, right? For opportunities to see what we have and how we can make it better, how it could have been better, whereas just staying stagnant um, and not thinking of how to improve. Because I think that's the benefit that that kind of work provides, right? Is being able to say, look, we're not done yet. I mean, we could make this a lot better. And I think that a lot of us kind of get stuck in this feeling of like, well, maybe this is as good as it's going to get. <laughs> and I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And not just with, you know, what happened with subjugating uh, different, you know, different, well, of course, destroying the Native American culture and the mm -hmm. and all the millions of lives lost, but also just um, in terms of 
the things that we seem to prize in this country um, Mm -hmm. in terms of work, it should feel like work, you know, it should, (laughs) you know, there shouldn't be, there's no having a sense of meditation or play that's not really valuable. Mm -hmm. And um, Thomas Morton was, you know, he wrote a, he wrote a manifesto when he got, exiled back to England, um, he wrote this whole manifesto called the New English Canaan. And a lot of it had to do with um, uh, that mentality of, of, of having a more playful mentality, as well as respecting um, their Native American neighbors that they were trading with all up and down the coast. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to make him the savior of this Sure. thing but um but at the same time if he could have been the leader of the european settlers and had and had been the one who you know helped create a a culture rather than you know governor bradford from the plymouth colony sure and the other puritans that came just after that it would have been you know That's just kind of where I'm, what I'm playing with right now. Well, that is really exciting. I think that's going to be a wonderful project that you folks are going to be putting together. And so please, please, I beg you when you finish it or when you get it out into the world, come and talk to me about it because I want to continue that conversation. I think it's going to be really beneficial and really awesome. But I have like just one or two more questions to be mindful of your time. This has been amazing. And I, I got to say, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. But, um, for me too. So let me, let me ask you this. What are some things that you have learned during your time as a writer that you'd be interested in sharing with those who are just starting out in their creative journey? Things that you know to be true about your craft as you see it now. Well, one thing that surprised me um, for this collection, the Red Low Fog transcript, is that I, I can vividly remember thinking when I when it started to come together, for example, that I wanted to incorporate formal uh, poetry forms and um, just all this stuff that I, you know, I barely was, had any experience as a poet, let alone mm. tackling formal po- uh, forms. And I just thought, well, this I'm going to have to be kind of, you know, again, I love to procrastinate by researching <laughs> things, but I, I really did believe that I was going to have to undertake so many years of formal study in order to even like live up to my own uh, concept. And I, I think so that is, and, and, but then I, for whatever reason, I just said, I just feel like doing this and just kind of, you know, staggered and stumbled my way through it. And I, and I'm glad that for once I didn't let those second guesses prevail. So mm. for me, um, I mean, it does feel ridiculous to think of myself giving anyone advice, but if this is meaningful to anybody, if you have a concept that seems really ambitious, um, it's, for me, it was surprising how m- how my confidence grew as I was tackling each different form. And mm-hmm. with each time that I felt like I'd, you know, I'd gotten it, I, it, it, it just informed the next thing and the next thing. So I, I, that would be a piece of advice. Just don't let your own ideas intimidate you. Wonderful. Wonderful. And lastly, what is your hope for the future? I hope that I, you know, just as I, because I had friends when I was younger who were poets and therefore I wasn't and that kind of thing, um, I would hope that if I, that I don't limit myself to thinking of myself as one kind of writer, that if something is calling to me that I will, you know, feel comfortable pursuing it because, um, if it doesn't work out, I'll probably 
end up cannibalizing it in 10 years <laughs> for something else. You know? Well, that's uh, that's wonderful, wonderful note to end on. I want to thank you so much, Melissa, for this incredible work that you've put out into the world for sharing a little bit of your perspective and for being so generous with your time. I feel like time just went past and, and went right by us, but it's been a real pleasure. And again, thank you so much for this, this amazing work and congratulations because this is an award-winning book. Thank you so much. <laughs> And I mean, again, I don't want to sound sickly sweet, but if somebody just happened to stumble on this podcast through this episode, just what do you have, like 60 or 65 by now? Just keep going. It's just so fascinating. Look at all all the other episodes. Oh, I really appreciate it. We're just chipping away one episode at a time, trying to get the word out. And uh, I'm really glad that I got to talk to you because this was a definitely a highlight. And I'm going to be checking out this book when it comes out. Go pre-order it, folks. This is over at, at, what's the website that it's at, Melissa? Well, it's Animal Heart Press. I can't remember the dot, whatever, but you (laughs) you can find it really easily by Googling it. That's right. I will link it in the episode description, but I will leave you be, Melissa. Thank you again for everything. And uh, I'll be in touch real soon. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye.